Hello, and welcome to episode 260 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfor-Stewart. Have you ever really investigated your assumptions about the world, whether it's out to get you or is an oyster in the palm of your hand? How we perceive the world is surprisingly important to how we show up as a manager and people leader. And today, my guest is going to help us understand how this perspective is formed and what we can do with it. But first, a warm welcome to Aaron G., Tori T., and Magdalena K. to the Modern Manager community. One of my favorite membership benefits is the one-page sketch notes that I create each week. I go through the finished interview and capture my key takeaways in a creative graphic-style note. These one-pagers have become my go-to reference sheets to help me remember the insights shared by each expert. This way, I can apply everything that I'm learning right along with you. If you're interested in these sketch notes, along with many other benefits, become a member of The Modern Manager at themodernmanager.com slash join. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Today's guest is Dr. Stephen Barnon. Stephen is an accomplished coach mentor and author specializing in developing top leaders and organizational cultures. He has a decade of experience in the media, technology, and communication sectors, including 10 years as a CEO. Stephen brings a unique perspective on leadership and business, and he shares a lot of that as the author of the rigorously researched book, How Successful Leaders Do Business With Their World. Stephen and I talk about his navigational stance concept that depicts how leaders see themselves in relation to the world around them. We get into the navigational compass, which he shares some of the behaviors and mindsets that great managers possess. Now here's the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Stephen. This is going to be really fun because I spent last night reading your book and I just, I feel like it was so obvious, but also so not what I've really like thought about when I think about leadership before. So I feel like my my brain was starting to like tingle and explode. I'm excited to get to talk with you and hear more about these interesting ways of understanding what makes for good leadership. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So let's just start at the beginning with this concept of the navigational stance, because this is like, I think, the fundamental principle that all of the other thinking builds off of. So can you explain to us what is this navigational stance and how do we develop this mindset in each of ourselves? bit of a backstory on that. The, 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 um, I did some research for a doctorate I was doing after I'd been a, a CEO and a senior manager for a couple of decades, then I'd been a, a coach. And I wanted to know from a group of people that I interviewed, and they would they were top military leaders, top business, commercial leaders, and top academics. And they were really objectively very successful. And I, I interviewed them, and what I wanted to know actually initially was, you know, what was how did they learn? What did they learn? What was their experience of learning as they were getting into that top position? How did they learn when they were under fire? But the interview, I don't know if you, you get that, maybe, but sometimes when you're talking to somebody and, and you're asking them questions, they, the answers seem to be quite formulaic. They're quite thin in many ways. They give you lots of technical details, but there's, there was no heart in it. And then they started talking about their childhood. They, for some reason, they kept on saying, well, when I was a kid, my mother used to say that I could cure cancer at, at four. 
And somebody else said, you know, when I was a when I was a child, I was I was quite weak and 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 I was bullied at school, so I developed tactics to to overcome this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I started to dig in because they were really they, it was almost as if a light bulb went down. They, the, the richness started coming through, and I started digging into this. And what I discovered uh, uh, through these 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 interviews, and they went there was a huge amount of data that I that I that I went through, was that these people had developed what I call a navigation, the navigational stance, and I'll talk about it in a little while. They developed a basic assumption about their relationship with the world, with their world being starting off with their families and, and then moving on to their schools, et cetera, et cetera. And that relationship was one which I filtered as power. They, they either saw the world as having much more power than they have or even more power than they had, or, or less power than they had. So these particular ones, because they were successful, most of them had what I call a partnering stance to the world. This was their, their basic assumption that the world was, and they had a manageable power balance. They could do business with the world. And that's why I called it the, the book, How Successful Leaders Do Business with the World. And they could do business. They could they could work with it. it you know things bad things happened it wasn't because the world was was putting things in their way it was because they hadn't done their job properly so the navigational stance comes out of the child's exploration in, to try and find its identity to try and find space of itself to try and find ways as i as i say in the book i think to try find ways to learn and to learn better to do only one thing to act and to manage better that the world that they're in. It's so fascinating how it's these really early experiences that so powerfully shape the way that we think about the world, the way that we interact with the world. And this partnering stance that the world is it's something that I can navigate, it's something that I can manage and, and work with, feels I think very obvious maybe for those of us who feel that way. But what are the some of the other stances or what are the other ways that we maybe have learned the world exists for us or against us? The, the, if, you, if you look at it on a spectrum, you would get people who, who actually come out of the world saying, the world is just too much for me. It, it's, it's, it, the, my, my assumption is that the world is so powerful that I'm either, and that's at that sort of abuse, abused, if you like, extreme, I'm either going to hide from it or I, ha I actually have to destroy it because it'll destroy me. That's one extreme. The other extreme, which I suspect only happens in, in extremely privileged, isolated families, is I'm so, I'm so powerful. I'm so much more powerful than the world that I, I don't have to even think about it. I'll just harness it to my needs. And of course, along that spectrum, you'll get less extreme, if you like. So you'll get where the world, you are competing against the world. You always have to prove yourself against the world. And in fact, one of the key things you'll find with people who have this oppositional stance where the world is opposite, opposing them, is they will talk about competing. They will talk about proving themselves. I have to prove myself. I've got 100 days to make my mark on this team, on this company. I have to prove myself. And that's basically saying I have to prove myself against the world mm -hmm. rather than hey, I'm here, I now I'm going to see what's going to happen, and now I want to see what the reality is, and I will, I will work with it. I will see what's happening, and I will work with it, and I will manage it, and I will take it to its destination. 
I can see how all of these different stances could could be formed. And it sounds like that with each of these different stances, it then dictates how we interpret what's happening around us and our behaviors for how we move forward and what we what we do and how we respond to situations. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly that, that's exactly right. I mean, you will get them in 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 different ways. I've I've had a client a number of years ago whose whose entire identity, if you like, was based on the fact that he could have this specialist knowledge of project management. He was a very good project manager. The problem was that because he was clinging to this identity as a project manager, because that was the way he could make himself heard in the adult world, when he moved to another company, he completely failed because he didn't he didn't look around and realize that the way the new company was doing project management, the way the new company related within the team was completely different to the previous company. So he he had been, if you like, so clinging to that identity because he needed to make a difference in the world in that way that he couldn't see the difference. He couldn't change course. He couldn't navigate, in other words. Fascinating that this is like this can actually start to inhibit us. It can be in one context, really a a force that drives us forward. And then in a different context, suddenly the thing that is holding us back. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. You know, one of the things that I always say about these, these really successful leaders, and I continue doing the research, obviously with, with others and finding people who are objectively successful is that they're just not, they don't compete. My favorite cynical phrase is, they may roll right over you if you get in the way, but they won't compete against you. Oh. I had a, I had a, a, I knew two well-known publishers and, and media moguls, I suppose you'd call them, many years ago. And the one would be always looking to see what the other one was doing. There were, there were two different companies. They were both successful. And they were, the one would, would look at what the other one was doing. What, what, what is so-and-so doing? How, how's he doing? What, what, is he going to make a bid on this, on this company, do you think? What, what do you think I should do? And the other one had absolutely no interest in competing. The one who had no interest in competing went on to, to make a huge empire. The other one collapsed. I'm not saying it was directly related, but it was very interesting because the one saw himself as having to fight and compete against the world, including, of course, the fellow publisher. So let's talk about some of these behaviors that people who have this partnering stance, like this medium mogul you just mentioned, who is so successful. Like, What are some of the mindsets, you call them compass points, that this set of folks embrace that contribute to them being so successful? They, okay, so a few things. One is they're they're immensely holistic, and you can see why, by the way. So holistic, I mean, they will they will look at their organization like an ecosystem. So they'll see all the linkages between. They will literally helicopter above and see the, in, the, all the linkages, but they will also see the linkages outside. So they'll see the linkages with with suppliers. They'll see the linkages with with buyers. They'll see the linkages with with customers. They they have this incredibly holistic view of things. So the one thing that they inevitably do and they do it year after year after year and i basically say that this approach should be should be taken by 
by teams at the very team level, at any management level, is they they will go over and review every year what is our purpose, what are we here for, what is our strategy, what assets do we have and what to be able to fulfill that strategy, and what channels do we have, in other words, where we're going to do it, what sort of behaviors do we need to have, what sort of skills do we need to have. And they will do this very detailed way in order to be able to see what their organization is there for and 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 therefore everyone within it what role they're playing so they're incredibly holistic in that way they also understand quite quickly that what seems to be a simple issue outside is not such a simple issue like for example i mean the the classic example of of not being holistic was is shoe company which subcontracts its the, the manufacturer of its shoes to a a factory in in Southeast Asia. You can do as a, as a garment company as well, if you like, and thinks fine. I've subcontracted that. I don't have to worry about that anymore. They're going to supply it and they're going to come back to me and and give me my completed shoes. Unfortunately, because they weren't holistic in looking at it, they didn't realize that when it a fire happened and people got killed in that factory, or and or the media discovered that the conditions under which these people were working were horrendous, they were damaged much more than the subcontractor was damaged. They were blamed for it. Never mind how much legally they had been, they had detached themselves, they were blamed for it because they weren't holistic. They didn't see the political climate, the social climate, the damage, the human climate, if you like, that was going on. They only saw themselves as being commercial, legal, whereas, in fact, they lived in a social world. Now, holistic people always take a look at that, always see that they're living in a social world, always see that they're looking, that they're living in a political world. Hence, if you like, the the, the damage that, that people who ignored the Me Too movement and people who ignored the diversity and, and ESGs when you ignore that, you ignore it at your peril. So holistic people, the, one of the characteristics they have is they really are alert to that, to, to holism. Well, and I can see how at a more micro level within your team that those same factors play out from a holistic perspective, that if you're only thinking about how is my team successful, but you're not thinking about the other departments that you maybe have to interface with, whose work relies on your work or who you rely on for their contributions and how your work is part of a bigger system overall and helping the company achieve its goals, that the lack of awareness or attention towards those other elements that are interplaying with your team and with your work and with your employees or even what's going on in society that might be affecting your team members and their ability to do their work, like the movements around diversity, equity, inclusion, et cetera, that, that you can get caught off guard and end up in really sticky situations. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, and I think when you're slightly oppositional or oppositional, is if the culture of the team is slightly oppositional, they will focus on, quote unquote, doing the job rather than understanding that you need to sustain relationships. You can't antagonize the team which is working on on product productizing when you're doing marketing. You can't an- antagonize them because you're going to have to have a sustainable relationship with them, and you've got to take a look at that. 
and talking about diversity as well, you'll find that really the people who have this balanced partnering approach, when they're being holistic, they will look at diversity because they're basically saying, my organization is part of a diverse society, and therefore I need to be able to hear the opinions and the perspectives of people reflecting that diverse society. Yes, yes, yes. All right, let's talk about another one of these compass points. Is there another that feels really resonant for the team level dynamic or for a leader who is maybe not thinking necessarily from the top, but is trying to lead in their space? Yeah, let's take a look at that. Yeah, what I call triangular challenge. And this is one that I it really, particularly CEOs find it very difficult, but also team leaders find it very difficult. Here's what I here's what the, one of the characteristics that these these assumptions that these balanced partnering leaders had. They challenged themselves, they challenged others, there was no issue about that, but they ensured, now I'm talking about structurally ensured that they were challenged by their own organization. And that meant not just challenged in terms of their decisions, but the assumptions that formed those decisions. I think, and you you and I have come across so many people who say, but my door is always open. My people know that they will, they can talk to me at any time. Actually, they can talk to you at any time. You will listen to them at any time, possibly. But actually, what are they telling you? And how how much do they feel that they can actually challenge not only your decision, but what led to that decision? I think Ray Dalio did that in, in with Bridgewater, where he basically created this system, or so he wrote about, where the meetings were entirely stripped of, of, of status, in other words, of hierarchy, and that people were then encouraged to challenge the idea for its merits and challenge the idea. I go a little further, or these people went a little further because I, I can't get credit, take credit for it. These, these are their findings. My research people found that the assumptions needed to be able to challenge as well. What were you assuming when you, when you did that? Why, why do you think that we should be going this way rather than that way? Now, teams should be able to do that. I think it's very important that teams should start doing that at this level. If the leader finds that this is, this is uncomfortable, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable, especially if the leader feels that she is, again, having to compete with her teammates. If you want the job done, if you want the best possible, most thought out idea to be expressed and to be put forward, that's the way to do it. Get them to challenge you and the assumptions that you make. But don't only make it about you. Get get Challenge other people as well and, and their assumptions as well. The danger, Mamie, is, and I've seen this happen a lot, is that being challenged, at, at the higher you get, and therefore the more you're getting challenged, if you like, being challenged and looking for outside views to be challenged, if you like, becomes exhausting. And eventually leaders start to default to their inner circle, where the group then becomes more important, team spirit becomes more important than the job. My plea and my my approach with with certainly when i'm when i'm working with teams is 
start it early. Start it when you're at that basic team level. Make sure that your team, your partner with your team, you're not the, the leader. Think of yourself as the, as, as the managing partner. Make sure that you use their ideas, their thoughts, their challenges, and you are able to do that with them to make sure, A, that you're getting the best ideas, but B, that you don't get groupthink. You don't cut yourself off. You don't get put, put yourself into a bubble. So important. So important. And I was actually just in a meeting a little earlier today where we were doing exactly that of challenging assumptions. And I we were debating about an audience and which way we wanted to go with a market. And I caught myself advocating really strongly and said, wait a second, let me take a step back. Let me lay out my assumptions about this audience. And let's grapple with those assumptions rather than going back and forth on, is this the right decision or the wrong decision? And it was so helpful because you actually get to find those better answers, the the deeper thinking. And it's not always easy to recognize our own assumptions. And the more that we can do that, the more that we can challenge each other and see it not as confrontational, but as enriching and in partnering, I think you're, you're right. That it's, it's so much stronger thinking that comes out of those conversations. And it's something that managers have to foster. They have to foster that environment and say, what assumptions are we making here? What assumptions are underlying your position so that we can debate those as opposed to just the ideas? Yeah. And I think there's something about, as you were, as you were talking there and, and talking about challenging assumptions as well, is there's, we still, I suspect, I may be wrong, but I certainly feel that we still seem to think that the prevailing ethos, if you like, about managing and leading companies is leading from the front, leading from with your gut, leading all those, those, and not actually taking the time, the care to really plan, to really think about, to really delve into what leads you to make decisions, how do you make decisions, and how do you actually bring your entire organization with you? Because success success is not just leading for the shareholders, or if you're in, in a team, leading to, to make sure that your boss is happy because that's the target that your boss has set. Success is actually making sure that you you reach your targets, but you also bring your entire team with you so that they will do better, even even better next time. They will make more success for you next time. So I think that's that's really important to actually start that challenge base becomes something that becomes the source, the seed of sustainability in 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 the, in the real sense of the word sustainability of an organization. I think. Yeah, I love that. I love that recreating the mentality that we challenge each other, not because we're trying to figure out who's smartest or who's right or who has the best ideas, but we challenge each other because collectively that is how we do better. So beautiful. All right. There's another one of these compass points that I would love for us to talk about, which is the pragmatism and do the best possible. So can you talk about that one? Because I think it it maybe relates, especially around decision-making. Yeah, I, I basically we said do the best possible until the possible is no longer best, then change the possible. So, and and there there are a couple of examples here. One was actually a personal example. 
I, in my younger days, worked for a television company in Britain. And this television company was hit by a, a strike, basically, because the camera people and, in fact, all the technicians were, were looking to get increased pay, quite an increased pay. And, and, the, and the company basically decided they weren't going to do it. So they went on strike. And the strike then continued for nine months. The CEO decided very quickly after the, the start of the strike that they were going to use all of management and anybody who wasn't a strike to actually do the jobs, if you like, of the of the technicians. Now, we're not going to talk about the, the moral mer- merits of this, but this is an example of what, what I was talking about. And he, this continued for about six to eight months. And he realized that he was doing the best possible to keep the company going, to keep to keep advertisers in there, to keep revenues going, et cetera, et cetera. And then he realized that this is no longer possible to sustain. So for some strange reason, maybe he then came to me and I was, I was the foreign editor. I wasn't, even, I wasn't even a manager at that stage. And he said, Barton, I believe you know something about organizations. He'd been obviously looking at my, my CV and he saw that I had somewhere, I had, I'd, I'd, been, I'd studied at organizational development at one stage. So he thought this was good enough. And he knew me. So he said, I want you to go away, lock yourself up in a hotel room, don't care how long it takes, come back with a reorganization, a restructuring of this entire organization so that we can run it and manage it so that everybody is as happy as possible and the conditions are better than anything that the unions ever thought of. And I want you to do it and make sure that this organization, this new reorganization, also ensures that we continue to succeed and, and, and gain listeners and viewers. Off I went. I thought, he was, I thought he was mad, actually. But off I went and I did this. And I knew the organization very well. So I started off by saying, you know, thinking, what is the purpose of this organization? And then working back, how are we going to structure it to do that? I came back and gave him this document. And uh, he said, okay, I like this. Let's go and present it to the board. Present it to the board. And then... We then rolled it out, and I'll tell you another story later about this man. But basically, what he decided was, I would do the best possible by continuing to run this organization with with the resources we had. Then, when that's no longer possible, I'll stand the whole thing on its head, change the entire organization, and so that it can run sustainably, strike or no strike. Wow. That, I mean, that's a huge shift and a huge transformation to say, I'm doing the best possible, but I need to change what is possible now because this is no longer working. This is no longer the best. And to really be able to take a step back and imagine something completely new and different or to stretch yourself or your team in a way that expands the thinking, that is huge. Yeah. And it comes from this navigational, if you like, the navigational foundation that basically says, don't just think about where you're going. Don't just think about one destination. Think about what, you know, what you're trying to do. Think about your purpose. And therefore, at some stage, you might have to change. You might have to change your destination. You might have to change your purpose. You might have to change the possible. I think Netflix, for example, did something like that, didn't they? When they started by saying, okay, so we're now, we're a distributor of content. We're a distributor of content through CDs. 
And then they said, okay, so now we've got to, we're not actually distributors of CDs. We need to, to, to change the distribution system and become a streamer of, of content. And then they realized, hang on, we need to change the possible here completely. We're not just a distributor of content. We are content. We create content. We are all about content. Change the possible. All right. Well, I think this is the perfect place for us to end. So can you tell us about a great manager that you worked for and what made this person such a fantastic boss? Well, it was funny enough, this one when the, the, the guy who um, asked me to reorganize, his name was Bruce Gingell, and he died some, some years ago. He's an Australian who was, in fact, the first person to ever appear on television in Australia. And Bruce was by no means a perfect boss. He had a, a, a lot of flaws and faults, and, and, and I loved him. I loved him for that. But he was the one that gave me probably my greatest sense of learning. When, when he then said, let's go and roll out this new organization of yours, and I said, okay, so who's going to do that? He said, oh, you are. I said, oh, goody. So I said, <laughs> so, so what title are you going to give me? And I, you know, what's my pay? He said, you're going to have no title, my friend, no title at all, and there's no pay extra. And I said, Bruce, I've, I've got to implement stuff with people who were who are my seniors, who have got more power than I have, basically the director of programs, the director of operations. And, and I, I said, you're giving me this with no title, no power at all. He said, your first lesson, my friend, in negotiating without power. Mm, beautiful. Oh, I, I feel like we just need to like let that sit for a second because it's such an important lesson in life. But where can people learn more about you, get a copy of your book, and learn about the other components of The Compass? Okay, so the book is called How Successful Leaders Do Business with Their World. It's available on Amazon. It's available, I think, on all, on all sites. It's published by uh, Routledge. There's more stuff on my website, which is stephenbarden.org. And also I do a podcast as well, which is called The Power of Balance, which you can see where that comes from. And I've got a number of podcasts on then, and there, there is a bit more about the, the whole thing about the navigational stance. And then finally, I do do quite a lot of posting on LinkedIn as well, which you can find me, Stephen Barton, there. Well, thank you so much again for joining me today. I really enjoyed getting to hear some of your stories and dig a little deeper into these different components of great leadership. Thank you, Mamie. Thank you very much. Stephen is providing his guide to preparing for an important conversation to patron members of the Modern Manager community. In this guide, he shares key questions to ask about yourself, the other person, the value of the conversation, and the desired outcome. Stephen shares how to use this guide during our extended interview, which is available to all members. To listen to that extended interview and get the guide, become a member at themodernmanager.com join. And if you work for a government or nonprofit agency, you get 20% off of any membership level. All the links are in the show notes, and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com 
That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.